0: Thank you, Dave. What's up, 1045? How you doing? You ready to do this? I'm ready to do this. Yeah, let's go. Well, as most of you are aware of by now after hearing me preach for the past few years, I am not ashamed to say that I am a big fan of the 80s. I like to use 80s illustrations, and I'm going to use one this morning. As a matter of fact, you might have already noticed the title of your sermon. I am convinced that the 80s produced some of the best movies in our culture, like Top Gun and Ghostbusters, yeah. and also some of the best… Can you, I said this, and 8 a.m. booed me. Can you believe that? Anyways, I'm also convinced that the 80s produced some of the best music in our culture. Case in point, a little band some of you might be familiar with called Journey. Now, you cheered for Journey more than when I said, what's up? (laughs) So, they have this song called Don't Stop Believing." How many of you know? Yeah, you know that song. (laughs) How many of the rest of you know that song? Yeah, a lot of hands going up. Okay. So this song has actually been critically acclaimed. It has been described as the perfect rock song. It's also been described as an anthem of our age or an anthem of our culture. If you don't believe me, just check Wikipedia. What's it about? This is a song about a lonely small-town girl and a city boy from South Detroit Having a Chance Encounter in the Night. This is a song about longing for feeling and experience. The lyric goes, living just to find emotion. This is a song about hiding in the night and rolling the dice just one more time to find that thrill. And even as I talk about it, I know that that familiar refrain is reverberating in your minds, don't stop believing, hold on to that feeling. But my question this morning is, don't stop believing in what? Just keep on believing that if you roll the dice one more time, you can find a thrill and just kind of move on and roll the dice again and hope to find a thrill again. Keep on believing that in the thrill of the night you can escape the, and remedy the monotony and meaninglessness of life. I want to suggest that this song does not express any kind of substantive call to any kind of substantive belief. On the contrary, I think that this song expresses what the Bible refers to, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes as vanity." Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to hate on Journey real hardcore, but you might be asking, what, Mike, does Journey have to do with Jesus? Well, Jesus has a lot to say about believing. He has a lot to say about belief, but what he has to say is quite different than our cultural anthems. Jesus has come that we might have victory over vanity, substantive belief in a hope that has nothing to do with rolling the dice or cheap thrill. So, today, this morning, I want to invite you to look with me at Scripture and examine together what Jesus has to say about belief. And we're going to be continuing where Pastor Andrew left off last Sunday, specifically in Mark chapter 9. Uh, So, open your Bibles, boot them up, turn to, scroll to Mark chapter 9, verse 14, and read along with me. Mark tells us, And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. church. This is God's Word. In the first chapter of his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes in it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith.'" Faith, belief, trust, And so, immediately in Paul's opening remarks in his letter to the church in Rome, he establishes this chain link between belief and power in the gospel and Jesus. You see, there is power in the gospel. We believe in the gospel, and Jesus is at the center of the gospel. Now, as we begin to investigate our passage this morning… I want to suggest that Jesus has already cast out many demons. If you've been following closely as we've been walking through, especially Matthew and Mark and occasionally also Luke, Jesus is, is not uh, surprised when he comes across spiritual forces of darkness. He casts them out left and right. As a matter of fact, at certain points he commissions his disciples to go out in his name, minister in his name two by two, kind of like little seal teams, and to heal the sick, and to cast out demons, and for the most part, they minister successfully up until this moment, up until this passage, where it seems to be a more difficult case, in which case, they fail. So look with me at verse 14, and let's start stepping through the passage and see what the Lord has for us. Verse 14, Mark tells us that, "...when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them." We tend to think when Jesus came to the disciples, but Mark tells us when they came to the disciples. So who is they? Who are they? They simply refers to not just Jesus, but also Peter, James, and John. If you were following along from last week in last week's passage, the passage that immediately precedes this one in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not just Mark's gospel, which we're in this morning, but in the passage immediately preceding, Jesus goes up onto a high mountaintop with those three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he is transfigured. He experiences a change of form. And so now they come down from the mountain to reunite with the remaining nine of the original 12 disciples. Are you with me? And so right in the first verse, there are three groups in view. Mark tells us that when Jesus and his boys come down from the mountain, that they are encountered by a great crowd. They are encountered by scribes and the remaining disciples arguing with those scribes. Throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these specific three groups, the crowds, the disciples, and the religious leaders here represented by the scribes represent all the people in the land, all the possible categories, those who are following Jesus, those who haven't yet made a decision about Jesus, and those who are opposed to Jesus. So they come down the mountain, and we open up our, our passage with the disciples arguing with the scribes in the midst of this great crowd, and the crowds always represent those who are confused, those who are lost, those who are wandering in the darkness. And what does Mark tell us? He tells us that they are arguing. And in this moment, we catch a glimpse of what I want to refer to as the discord darkness. Jesus comes down from the glory of the mountaintop where the veil is lifted to the side for just a second. It's pulled aside and where He is radiant, where He he, he is transformed. But He comes down from the mountain and He's met by chaos and He's met by pandemonium. Everyone is in a state of of conflict. This is not unlike when Moses goes up onto the mountain, beholds the glory of God, and comes down from the mountain or brings the law down from the mountain. And what, what's going on with all the people? They're wor- they've set up false idols. They're worshiping false idols. They're, they're in darkness. They're confused. They're lost. They're disobedient. There's a strong parallel. But we continue into verse 15. Mark tells us that immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran, ran up to him and greeted him. Okay, that seems straightforward at first glance, but I want to suggest that their great amazement should seem a little bit out of place. After all, Jesus and his disciples are always going around. Jesus is always ministering, teaching the disciples, training the disciples, and the crowds are always following them around, Right? So, why should the crowd be greatly amazed that they find Jesus with his disciples? Like, they're there because they expect Jesus to be there, so why would they be greatly amazed? You follow me? I think it's because they've just come down the mountain, and they're witnessing the after effects of the transfiguration. Last week, Andrew talked to you about that. He talked to you about how Jesus, Jesus experienced a, a change of form and the disciples got a glimpse of his divinity. They got a glimpse of his future glory. They got a glimpse of what we have to look forward to. Again, like Moses, he comes down from the mountain, and after Moses had experienced just just a glimpse of the glory of God, he came down reflecting it, radiant. The people were afraid. Well, Jesus isn't reflecting the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. He's the perfect imprint of his being. So, he comes down. I think there are after effects, and the people are like, whoa, greatly amazed, greatly amazed. And so, there's immediately in this passage at the outset this fantastic juxtaposition, this fantastic contrast between glory and light up on the mountaintop, the mountaintop experience contrasted with darkness and conflict and confusion and brokenness, and discord down below. But of course, Jesus does not address the crowd's great amazement. Instead, He chooses to confront the disciples' great argument. Verse 16, and He asked them, what are you all arguing about with them? What is going on? Why are you tripping? <laughs> Jesus immediately identifies the conflict in the scene. And that leads me to the first point this morning, and that is that spiritual dark the spiritual darkness of this world breeds social discord among its peoples. The spiritual darkness of this world breeds social discord among its peoples. What do you mean by that, Mike? Church sin has ruined civilization. This world is dark. This world is broken. If you do not believe me, just look around. People are at odds. Politicians are at odds. Nations are at odds. Racism has not gone away. It is still rampant. Genocide still occurs in every generation. People exploit each other. Slavery is still alive and well, especially in the form of human trafficking. Human trafficking is one of the most pointed examples of humans exploiting humans, and it happens every single day in our own neighborhoods, in massage parlors, in Even and especially at the Super Bowl, where it has been well documented that the demand is highest for sex trafficked young boys and young women. Think about that for a minute. We assemble to worship our elite athletes at the most celebrated athletic spectacle in our culture, and it just so happens that the idolatry of athletics coincides with the idolatry of sex. This world is dark. But it doesn't just stop with us. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the whole creation has been subjected to futility and is in bondage of corruption because of sin. But back to the scene at hand. Jesus comes down the mountain to find a mess. It's a dark scene. There is conflict. There is confusion. There is discord in that darkness. But Jesus doesn't cower in the face of darkness and discord. What happens next? Verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, "'Teacher, I brought my son to you, "'for he has a spirit that makes him mute. "'And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, "'and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. "'So I asked your disciples to cast it out, "'and they were not able.'" Incidentally, this is the first description of that demon's destructive activity. And that demon's destructive effect on the boy is mentioned four times in this passage. Darkness, specifically the darkness of demonic activity, is a theme in this passage. Now, note that previously Jesus asked the disciples a question. What are you all arguing about? What's going on? That question is not answered here in the next verse. Instead, we see this lone voice crying out, speaking about how a demon has disrupted his son's ability to speak how this demon has overtaken the boy and causes him to exhibit epileptic-like symptoms. Now, I want to say a word about that. This passage, in this instance, is not a case of a description rooted in some kind of primitive, pre-scientific mindset. Critics of the Bible will look at this and say, oh, we just didn't have, you know, the scientific or the medical categories back then, and so they just attributed everything to the spiritual realm because they just didn't know any better. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's not the case, but more on that later. Here in this moment, we should get a sense of what the disciples and the scribes were arguing about. You see, in the man's opening call to Jesus, he identifies that the disciples failed, Right? He identifies that the disciples failed, and the disciples are arguing with the scribes. And so, there's a sense in which in front of everybody, in front of this, it's not just a crowd, it's a great crowd. In front of the great crowd, in front of the scribes, the disciples have this opportunity to minister, and they fall flat on their faces. And all through the gospels, we see the religious leaders, whether it's the Pharisees, whether it's the Sadducees, whether it's the scribes, whether it's the priests or the high priests or some combination of the above, they're always coming after Jesus, trying to discredit his disciples so that they can discredit him. And so, I could just kind of see the argument unfolding and escalating. Perhaps the scribes were arguing with the disciples about authority. Ha, you guys failed. We knew that your Jesus wasn't the real deal. He hasn't really given you authority. You guys aren't really legit. Or, you know, the scribes were kind of like the seminary professors of that day. They were like the guys that knew the Old Testament the best. And so maybe they were arguing with the disciples about methodology. You guys don't know what you're doing. If you had really studied like us, if you really knew the Torah, you know, if you really knew the law, if you really knew the prophets, if you really knew the writings, you'd know you're supposed to do it this way. But guess what? Despite all their arguing, all three groups are impotent to remedy the situation, aren't they? The disciples couldn't do anything. The scribes certainly couldn't do anything. Nobody in the crowd had anything to offer this pleading father But now I want to call your attention to a very important little detail in the passage that's so easy to overlook. I want you to consider the Father's opening words as he calls out from the crowd to Jesus. He says, I brought my son to you. You. I brought my son to you, Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us that the disciples were camping out, taking care of this father and his son, saying to them, hey, you guys just hang tight. Let us take care of you. When Jesus comes back, trust him. He'll take care of business. Did they do that? Did the disciples point these, this man and his boy to Jesus? No. Certainly, the scribes didn't. They were probably elated that they that the disciples failed, and nobody in the crowd is saying to, the, to this father and his afflicted boy, hey, just wait for Jesus. It's only the father himself who is looking to Jesus. Verse 19, and Jesus answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Notice how The narrative progresses. Notice how the account unfolds. Jesus comes back. He asks the disciples, What's up? Why are you arguing? No response to that. Some guy cries out to Jesus from the crowd, pleads with him, tells him about his son who's being afflicted, explains how the demon is afflicting his son. But then does Jesus respond to the man in this next verse? No, he doesn't. Mark tells us that Jesus answered them. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus doesn't respond directly to the Father. Instead, he addresses all the people who are present, specifically all the groups. He's speaking out to the crowd. He's speaking out to the religious leaders. He's speaking out even to his own disciples. And as he's speaking out, assessing them, calling them out, what does he single out? What does, he, what, does he, what does he single out? What does he call them out for? Faithlessness, right? Jesus singles out faithlessness. Faith, my friends, is the theme of this passage. Faith. We could also translate faith as belief. We could also translate faith as trust. And they are very closely related to dependence. Just like The the demons, demonic activity is mentioned four times in this passage. Faith or faithlessness is also mentioned four times. They are contrasted. I've talked to you about how Jesus' activity in this passage, in the previous passage, parallels the activity of Moses. All of this is saying, look, Jesus is the better Moses. It it all points to Jesus. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. All these scribes, they, you know, they look back to Moses and and everything that's unfolding right in front of them is like, no, 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 Moses is pointing to the one that's like right in front of you. When Jesus says to the whole generation, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? He's most likely citing, quoting Deuteronomy 32.20. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 33, 34, Moses is coming to the end of his life, the end of his tenure of leadership. He's getting ready to hand the reins over to Joshua to take the people into the promised land. And as part of his concluding moments before he dies, Moses speaks this prophetic song over all all the people of Israel. And as he's speaking that prophetic song over the people of Israel, he's he's acting as Yahweh's mouthpiece, as God's mouthpiece. And God says through Moses to the people of Israel, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. There it is, faith again in issue. Jesus is essentially saying to all the people that are out there, not just the disciples, not just the scribes, even everyone in the crowds, you guys haven't changed. Nothing's changed. That's why I'm here, so things will change. I'm going to change things. You know, our culture likes to talk about progress, right? Humans, we're making progress. Progress is just, just, this is a thin veneer. You can poke through and the darkness is just swirling underneath. There is still darkness and discord around the world, there is still brokenness. And Jesus is pronouncing judgment over these people saying, nothing's changed, but that's okay. That's why he's here. He doesn't leave it at that though. Jesus at the end of verse 19 says to everyone, bring him to me. Bring the boy to me. And in that moment, his words are so reminiscent of what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Incidentally, I put that reference in the wrong place on your notes. It should come right after Deuteronomy 32, 20. Hope you guys allow me to stay on the job. I'm sorry for that. But Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to me, come to me, come to me. So he tells everyone, bring the boy to me. I'm the one that makes everything right. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. This is the second description of that demon's destructive activity. And notice that what happens when the spirit, which has possessed the boy, conf- is confronted by Jesus, is in the presence of Jesus, is it does the exact thing that the father described it as doing. Verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This is the third description of the demon's destructive activity. Notice that when the man calls out to Jesus, Jesus does not immediately deal with the demon, and he does not immediately deliver or heal the boy. The first thing Jesus does is address the Father. Sometimes we want Jesus to jump, when we say jump, right? I'm sure that man was like anxious. Yeah, great, but can we just like take care of business here? This is my boy. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the Father. At first glance, because of the delay and because of the question It almost seems like Jesus is a little bit detached emotionally in this moment. How many of us go to the doctor, you know, and, like, we wait in the waiting room for a while, and then we get into, you know, the examination room, we kind of sit up on that long table, you know, with the paper, you sit down, and the paper kind of crinkles or rips, and you're like, shoot, should I tear it off and pull more out, or should I just leave it? Uh, No, I better not do that, because then the doctor's going to come in, it's going to be an awkward moment right? You know what I'm talking about. And then the doctor comes in and, you know, so what's going on? Explain your symptoms. How long has it been going on? It just seems very routine, right? How long has it been going on? So, the sense in which we're kind of conditioned to maybe read read into this, just a routine question coming from Jesus. But church, I want to suggest that this question is anything but routine. Jesus is not... Disconnected, he is not disinterested, he is not detached from the condition of the father or the boy emotionally. I think that Jesus asked this question for at least two compelling reasons. I think the first reason Jesus asked this question is to demonstrate compassion for the father and the boy. How many of us have ever gone through a period of difficulty? I mean, real trial, maybe life or death. Everything, you're questioning everything. It's hard. You wake up every day, you wonder, can I go another day? This father is desperate. And isn't it helpful in that moment for us to have somebody, especially somebody that can do something about the situation, come alongside of us and just kind of sit with us in our pain for a moment? Identify with us. Man, how long? How long has this been going on? How are you doing? I just want to sit with you in this moment. That helps, right? It's one way we can care for each other. Identification with one another is a strong means of ministry. And so I think Jesus is demonstrating compassion, identification through this question. Do you think Jesus needed the answer to that question? Do you think he had to ask it? I don't think so. <clears throat> I think he demonstrates compassion through it. And secondly, I think that this question highlights for the whole scene, for us, For all who observe this scene, whether directly in that moment or on the pages of Scripture throughout 2,000 years of history, I think the question underlines the seriousness, the gravity of the situation, and the apparent hopelessness for a cure. Undoubtedly, this man had sought other physicians, he had sought other faith healers during that time, he had probably gone to great lengths to exhaust every opportunity to seek a remedy for his son's situation, but to no avail. He's been like this since childhood, since childhood. That's a long time. Now, I want to jump back to the matter of kind of our culture's anti-supernatural bias. Are you with me? Epilepsy does not have consciousness or volition. When I say it doesn't have volition, I mean it can't reason, think, and choose. It's not partial to one circumstance over another. It's not partial to one person's presence over another when it manifests itself. Epilepsy doesn't try and manifest itself specifically in the moment Jesus is present. Epilepsy doesn't try to throw people into water or into fire. And so, I want to encourage us not to kind of retroject our 21st century medical categories where Scripture tells us explicitly that the cause is spiritual, that the cause is demonic. After all, the New Testament writers made distinctions between these categories. All over the pages of the New Testament. Just read the Gospels. Jesus heals people of sicknesses all the time, and most of the time when Jesus, when Jesus is healing, it's not attributed to demonic activity. For Pete's sake, Luke was a doctor, right? Like, he knew how to diagnose somebody with a constant flow of blood. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share this account and emphasize that this was demonic activity. Church, we have in this passage a very real encounter with a very real demonic power. This passage affirms the existence of an unseen spiritual realm, a realm of darkness that has dominion over this world, at least right now. And whether we realize it or not, the demonic realm opposes us today. But back to the last words of that father's plea for help. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything... You can just hear the emotion in his words. This man is at his wit's end. He is just about hopeless. His son has been afflicted since childhood. I have a seven and a half month old son. Little Zachary. I love him so much. I would do anything for him. And I pray every day that God protects his little life, that God protects him from illness, that God protects him from injury, that he would grow up to love the Lord, to be a student of his word, to be a faithful and godly man, that he would be saved at a young age. And just as a young father, just when I see him fall and hit his head on a toy and start crying, and oh my gosh, is something wrong? Did he, you know, did, did he, did he hurt his eye? I can't imagine what it's like for this man, for some of you parents who walk with your children, through very serious conditions like this, very serious affliction. The man's at his wits' end. The father is in need, crying out on behalf of his son, which leads us to the most powerful moment in the passage. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. <clears throat> you see, in this moment, Jesus is calling the father to believe. I once had a seminary professor, and in that class, we were debating, you know, can you lose your salvation? Can you not lose your salvation? Is there such thing as eternal security? Blah, 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 blah. Like, what if we could just ask Jesus? What would Jesus say? My professor pointed out, rather astutely, I think, in in concert with this passage. You know, if you could ask Jesus, Jesus, can I lose my salvation? He would just look at you and say, believe. Both a command and a call. And so Jesus says, all things are possible for the one who believes. He essentially turns the man's request right on its head. This issue is is not concerning Jesus' ability to deliver the boy, but rather the issue instead is, is the faith of the man. the father responds to Jesus. Mark tells us, immediately. He doesn't waver. He doesn't second guess. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't doubt. Immediately, we're told, he cried out. And the word that is used here, that is translated cried out, is, is, a, is, is a, a less often used word in the Greek New Testament, and it carries a strong emotional sense, a, a, a crying out loud, verbally loud, emotionally resonating. And so, we have a scene here where this father immediately in response to Jesus is saying, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. The desperation is just dripping off of his words. And so, in this moment, the father confesses some faith and it seems like a weak like a feeble faith but it is faith nonetheless the father is the only figure in this entire scene who exhibits faith towards jesus mark does not tell us that the disciples exhibit faith towards jesus he doesn't tell us that the crowds exhibit faith towards jesus certainly the religious leaders don't exhibit faith towards jesus just this lone wolf this lone guy this one voice cries out, I brought him to you. I believe, help my unbelief. This father comes to Jesus broken, humble, and in need. He does not offer Jesus a collection of qualifications for why Jesus should grant his request. He does not say, I have done this, or I have done that. I am worthy because of this, or I am worthy because of that. No, no, no. The man simply cries out a plea of desperation and dependence. He comes with nothing more than modest faith He simultaneously recognizes that Jesus can supply him with even more. That leads me to the second point, which I have been laboring to this morning, and that is that we have access to the power of God through helplessness, helplessness, not holiness. Helplessness, not holiness. The gospel doesn't say, believe and bring all your qualifications. Jesus doesn't say, Come to me, all you who have it all together. And if your qualifications stack up right, I'll help you out. No, he doesn't say that. That's not the gospel. The default proclivity of the human heart is to justify itself. That is our default fallen spiritual condition. That is what Jesus came to reverse. And unlike mankind who wants to credit, who wants all the credit for work and credit for belief, our Lord... Our Jesus comes to us in spite of us. In this scene, the disciples don't get it, but a stranger does get it. Behold the grace of God. Salvation is not about proximity. Salvation is about grace. Salvation is about grace through faith. Only God opens eyes to see. Behold His grace in the cry of this man. Israel came to Jesus haughty, not helpless, and Israel missed her Messiah. But this father has no confidence in himself. He brings to Jesus, nothing but his broken son. But he came to Jesus. He didn't go to somebody else. I brought my son to you, he says. I believe, help my unbelief. What a cry, what a prayer. This really important guy in the history of church, pretty smart guy, his name is John Calvin. He said this about this father's plea, his cry, that petition, I believe but help my unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. As our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are partly unbelievers, but God forgives us and exercises such forbearance towards us as to reckon us believers on account of a small portion of faith. It is our duty in the meantime carefully to shake off the remains of infidelity which adhere to us, to strive against them, and to pray to God to correct them, and as often as we are engaged in this conflict, to fly to Him for aid. If we duly inquire what portion has been bestowed on each, it will evidently appear that there are very few who are eminent in the faith, few who have a moderate portion and very many who have but a small measure. Is that sobering? Is that striking? Do you identify with that? I identify with that. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I have a question for you. Where in your life has unbelief taken root? Where in your life do you have need for faith? Are you defeated with a certain sin? Have you just given up? I just can't beat it. You're right, you can't beat it. Are you plagued by pornography? Are you given to gossip? Do you believe that Jesus can break the power of that sin? Are you depressed because of your circumstances? Have you been crushed by some kind of tragedy like this father was suffering with his son? Are you incapacitatingly lonely? Do you need hope? Are you walking through the fire? if you are come to jesus come to jesus cry out to him. cry out to him right now don't wait don't wait to the end of the sermon cry out to him right now because he is able he is good church he is gracious he is powerful he's broken the power of sin he's come to deliver us from the domain of discord and darkness do you believe all things are possible for the one who believes. You don't fight your sin by trying harder. You fight your sin on your knees depending upon him. That's right. That's right. Now the narrative takes a quick turn. Jesus is about to regulate. Now We're going to start moving really quickly, so I want you to follow along. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a great crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. That's what we call laying the smack down. So, first Jesus commands, and next he will vanquish. Verse 26, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. This is the fourth and final description of that demon's destructive activity. The demon won't go down, won't go out without a fight. It is trying to destroy that boy, that life. It is trying to wreck that person, that human made in the image of God to its very last moment of opportunity. And the people said, he's dead. He's gone. It's, it's over. It's done. But guess what? Jesus restores. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus has come with power and authority to destroy the darkness and defeat death. He has come with power and with authority to destroy the darkness and to defeat death. He is our protector. He is our deliverer. He is powerful. He is able. Now, the substance of our passage has concluded in our narrative, turns. Jesus is going to turn to his disciples in private. And though they failed both at the beginning, and here we're going to see also at the end, he is still a good shepherd. He is still faithful. He does not kick them to the curb, he shepherds them along. Verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't we do it, Jesus? Here in their question, in light of everything else that has already unfolded, we see that this passage centers on the faith of the Father in contrast to the failure of the disciples. You see, this this passage is like a failure sandwich with faith right in the middle. We open the scene. Jesus comes down the mountain. The disciples are arguing with the scribes. They're not caring for the people. There is discord. There is darkness. It's overtaken them. They are lost and confused just like everybody else. They fail to minister and exercise a demon most likely because they've just gotten accustomed to doing that. Maybe they depend on their own ability now or think that they can just do it and don't need Jesus. I don't know, but they failed in the beginning. Now here at the end, they fail to see why they failed. They failed to see that they were no longer dependent on their Lord. Why could we not cast out? Just look at the substance of their question. Who's the subject of the question? Is it Jesus or is it them? Us, me, me, Jesus, we. Why couldn't we do it? What's wrong with me? Not what's right with you. But not this Father. Not this man. He comes to Jesus saying, teacher, I brought my son to you. You're the object of my focus. You're the object of my vision. You're the object of my desire. I am seeking you. I'm not focused on what I can or cannot do. I know what I can. I can't do anything apart from you. So Jesus responds to his disciples. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but what? Prayer. This is the first time that prayer is mentioned in the passage. Four times we've encountered faith or faithlessness. We've dealt with a lot of darkness. But this is the first time that Jesus has mentioned prayer. Why does Jesus single out prayer? Because prayer is the ultimate expression of dependence upon God. Prayer is the vehicle through which we cry out to Him, the vehicle through which we confess our inadequacy and come to him in faith. Faith is at the heart of this encounter. Faith is at the heart of this passage. We express our faith. We express our dependence through prayer. You guys were not depending on me. This kind of battle must be fought on your knees. This kind of battle must be fought in prayer in submission, in humility, in dependence, not upon what you can or cannot do, but upon what I can or cannot do, and what I will or will not do. You see, they had lost sight of their dependence on Jesus. It's all a fundamental matter of dependence. That brings me to the final point this morning, church. Persistent prayer is the paramount posture of faith. Persistent, ongoing, continual prayer is the primary, the paramount, the principal posture of faith. In prayer, we find strength from the Lord. In prayer, His power is made perfect in our weakness. In prayer, we both demonstrate faith and find that faith is supplied to us all the more And now this brings me to the gospel. The man cried out to Jesus. Jesus said back to him, some things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible for one who believes. But some of us don't get healed now, right? My mom still has cancer. Lucy Chavaria passed away two nights ago from cancer. Some of us don't get healed What's up with that? This is a question of immediate versus ultimate deliverance. We all contend in this life with the problem of suffering, with the brokenness in this world, pain in our lives. We have to look death in the face. We lose those we loved. We have to confront natural disaster. We have to confront tragedy. We have to confront confront disease. We have to confront betrayal. We have to confront all manner of things that are wrong in this world that threaten to crush us, that threaten to break us. And so, when we suffer like this father had suffered, like his son had suffered, we are tempted to ask God. Indeed, we very naturally ask God, why? 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 Why is this happening? Why did this happen? Who can identify? Who's been there? Season of life. God, why? Why? I'm sure this father asked that question of God. Why? Why is my son, why is he tormented by this demon? Why is he? His whole childhood seems lost. He missed it. Why? We don't have God's eternal perspective. We can't answer that question by ourselves. That father could have never realized, appreciated, or predicted the fact that the testimony of his little micro modicum of faith and Jesus' healing of his son would be recorded in not just one gospel narrative, but three gospel narratives transmitted to millions of Christians throughout the last 2,000 years of history, proclaiming the gospel, calling people to Jesus, therefore, forgiveness of sin and salvation and eternal life. So, why? Why? We don't know why, but God had a glorious reason in this instance. God is always redemptively at work in our suffering. He promises that all over the New Testament. And when we are tempted to ask, why, God, and to follow up that question with a frustrated disposition which leads to a a doubting disposition, which leads to an angry disposition with God, God, why? We must be careful. Not to allow the enemy to sow seeds of doubt that erode the very faith that we're talking about in this passage. We must follow that question up with two intimately related questions. We can ask why did this happen, but we should immediately ask the other two questions. Does God care and is He doing anything about it? And if you think about it, the last two questions are the two questions that really matter to us because we can ask why did it happen. It doesn't change the fact that it's happening. But as you're going through it or as you're processing with it or as you're dealing with the fallout, knowing positively that God cares and knowing positively that He's doing something about it, that's helpful. That's meaningful. Look at the passage. Does Jesus care? How long has your son been like this? lifts him up, rise. Not only does Jesus care, he does something about it. That is a picture of the gospel. You see, that boy wasn't raised to live forever. He's not walking on a street somewhere in the world today. He was raised, but he died again. Jesus raised his good friend Lazarus. Lazarus died again. While these were profound and miraculous and meaningful instances of Jesus' healing, they were momentary. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a massive problem if you take a real cosmic perspective. And I don't mean to minimize or, or, or diminish any of the suffering that we go through in this life. But as we revisit this passage, as we step through it, and as we come to conclusions, I want to point out to you, church, that, that faith, belief, is linked to the gospel which is God's cosmic resolution to all that has gone wrong. So, God does care about our suffering, and He has done something about it. You see, related to these questions, we must recognize that in Jesus, we meet the God who has suffered. He sympathizes with us. Not only does He say, how long has He suffered He walks to a cross and is nailed to it, and He suffers and and dies unjustly. He's the God who has suffered like us and who did not deserve the suffering that He experienced. He is the God who has not only suffered like us, but who has also suffered for us. And in his suffering, he has slain the power of sin and taken upon himself the punishment church that we deserve. Jesus has come to destroy the darkness and to defeat death. Sin is the root cause of the discord in this world. Sin is the root cause of our separation from God. We rebelled. Sin is the root cause of the demon that afflicted the boy in this passage. Sin is the root cause of all sickness, that which afflicts our lives and the lives of those we love. But we find hope in the gospel. God does care. And God has done the ultimate thing about our pain and suffering and brokenness and even our sinfulness. So we revisit Romans chapter 1. When we take this cosmic perspective, when we see God's plan of redemption, of resolution to all that has gone wrong, that gives rise to pain and suffering and death, we can identify with Paul and we can proclaim with him that we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes, faith, belief, trust expressed through prayer, the primary posture of dependence. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the, into the world to save sinners. That's you and me. He says just one chapter later, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus went to the cross. He cared for us and he did something about it. I will say it again this morning and I will say it for weeks and years to come by God's grace. It should become a mantra of our church. Church sin ruins, Jesus restores. Sin ruins, Jesus restores. Jesus says in John chapter 16, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. That father needed peace. That boy needed peace. We need peace. This world needs peace. Peace. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That is our Lord. And so we long for him to return and to set everything right that has been set so horribly and tragically and painfully wrong. And as we look to his return, we know the end of the story. We know how history is consummated. John tells us in Revelation chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea sea. what God says here. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And as if that was not hopeful enough, God himself concludes, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Church, this morning, I want to invite you to come alongside me, and for all of us to come alongside that modest Father and come to Jesus and cry out to Him, we believe, but help our unbelief. Church, come to Jesus, believe in Jesus, don't stop believing in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Jesus, thank you for coming, for living, for dying. Thank you for caring about our brokenness, our sinfulness, enough to do something about it. Though sometimes we do not know why we go through what we go through, though we cannot see the specifics of your grand eternal plan, Jesus, we cry out to you this morning, We believe but help our unbelief. Give us faith. Cause us to be a people that trust you, that believe in you, that have faith in you, that love you, that follow you. We pray all these things, dear Jesus, in your precious name, amen.